it's been often used in sub-Saharan Africa. When I talk to policymakers, um, some of them, and donors, they want to get away from it because it's perceived as old. And they and in, in the world of educational technology, we like what's new. But um, it's one, it's the only technology that has a proven body of research behind it. I totally enjoyed the interview with Mary Bonds, who has over two decades of experience in education. So I was basically getting inside the past two decades. We talked about a range of things. Um, some was focused on the recent MasterCard Foundation research, which she did in partnership with Mohammed from the University of Mauritius. She shared a lot of insights, right? And without giving too much, one of them being, what is that one key question we should ask about education technology, seeing as it is education technology and not just technology. I would love for you to go listen. So let's just get right in with how introducing itself. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Mary Burns. I work at Education Development Center, which is an international nonprofit based outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, we've been around since 1958. We focus on education, on health, and on workforce development across the globe in the United States. I have been involved in education all my life as a student, of course, and since the 1980s as a teacher. Um, in terms of technology, I always say that I, I taught in one computer classrooms where my students were begging me to use technology and I didn't know what to do with the computer. <laughs> and ended up teaching in one-to-one -one computer classrooms. Um, and for the past 22 years, I have been working in the area of educational technology, specifically on teacher professional development, both online and offline. Um, I've done a lot of work around instruction. I've done a lot of evaluation research around educational technology. And I currently advise um, ministries of education and donor organizations on how to plan for technology, how to develop international technology policies and how to implement. So let's just get right into it. What is education technology? People have a lot of opinions about this? Yeah, I would say that, <clears throat> well, really, there's kind of two flavors. So there's um, technology that's specifically designed for educational purposes. So specific softwares, educational apps, etc. Um, but I would say that educational technology is even broader than that. Um, it's really, oftentimes, it's, it's considered to be computers and the internet, but it involves, a, I think, a much broader set of digital tools. So it can include things like video conferencing, digital television, interactive whiteboards, gaming, um, and increasingly, you know, small portable mobile devices, tablets, MP3 players, gaming devices, smartphones, probes, graphing calculators. And I think what they all have in common is that they're tools that allow users to gather information, to analyze, communicate, collaborate around that information for the purpose of teaching and learning. And, and I guess I'll just add um, that what they also have in common is that their use and frequency of use really varies according to a variety of factors, some of which are technical, but most of which are not. Um, so their perceived utility, their complexity, their relevance, familiarity, and perceptions about the value they add to the teaching and learning process. Interesting. So what is the, looking at it on a more, at a more contextual level, uh, what is the current reality of education technology in developing nations, and more specifically, sub-Saharan Africa? Um, so, you know, educational technology is everywhere. Um, and 
you know, it's, um, I always like to use the quote by Mae West, um, the American film actress in, of the 1930s, who said, I've been rich and I've been poor and rich is better. And <laughs> typically countries that are wealthier have much better developed um, educational technology infrastructure and practices, but not always. Um, and there's been, um, you know, there's a lot of bad practice, whether it's wealthy schools or, or poor schools. Um, but, you know, specifically in terms of Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, where I've been over the last, um, you know, year and a half looking at educational technology, I just want to say that there's um, there's been a tremendous amount of kind of progress. And I really want to mention this because we often think of um, sub-Saharan Africa is where educational technology goes to die. Um, but in fact, uh, there's a lot of great stuff happening since I've been going to Africa, which I began in 1992. So there's countries like Rwanda, Kenya, South Africa, Mauritius, Cape Verde, and even Ghana, as, as, as I understand it, that have moved very far in educational technology. There's telecommunications infrastructure. There's strong electrical grid. Um, there's radio, TV, internet infrastructure. There's a critical mass of teachers who at least know how to use technology. There's policies, there's programs, there's visions. There's partners who are helping governments put technology in schools. And there's a critical mass of uh, users of technology for education in cities, in large cities anyway. And, you know, if you look at a country like South Africa, where I went in, two, I was there in 2000 and I went back in 2018. And as much as South Africans lament the state of educational technology in their country, for me, it was really amazing because affluent urban provinces have adopted ICT in all spheres of government service delivery, not just education. And the South African government has really shifted from just providing ICT infrastructure to really integrating it in terms of teaching and learning. And this whole concept of e-administration has penetrated about, you know, what I understand, 98% of schools. And you know, the South African government is South African Department of Basic Education, their Ministry of Education, is using data to inform decisions and government. Government is putting more effort in developing state-owned digital textbooks and open education resources, so they're reducing their dependency on proprietary resources. And something that I think is extraordinary, because it doesn't even exist here in the United States, arguably the wealthiest country in the world, and that is that South African schools have an on-site technical support person. And that's pretty extraordinary. Mm. Interesting. So that actually takes me to my next question. What differences have you observed in terms of those who have more access to technology and those who have less access to technology? How have they adapted? How have they contextualized um, the level of access they have to the use of education technology? Mm. You know, I might have to answer that in a different way, Ubu. The question is really you're talking about the digital divide. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we're really talking about a digital divide, which again, and sub everywhere, but particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, is quite complex and hydro-like. There's a digital divide in terms of geography, which you're alluding to in your question in terms of rural and urban areas. There's a digital divide in terms of gender um, in sub-Saharan Africa. We know from research that boys access and use technology more than girls. There's a digital divide in terms of abilities. We know that children 
who have certain kinds of physical limitations, have less access to educational technology. I think, you know, the question that you're asking, I, I'm not really able to answer it from a, kind of a user perspective, so I'm going to flip it and, and answer it from a policy perspective. And it is that we need to start thinking about uh, technology and particularly communication technologies um, and infrastructure, cell phone coverage and internet is kind of basic infrastructure uh, mm. and providing it everywhere because that the divide, digital divide that spills into economics, into health, into education, into livelihoods will never get fixed without the technology. The problem is that you know, providing cables and fiber to rural areas is extraordinarily expensive because you don't have a lot of density. And that's, we face that here in the United States, again, arguably the world's wealthiest country, where rural areas, there's a, an enormous lag between poor families and their access to digital infrastructure. For example, Asian and, and white families, um, over 92 or 93% have access to high-speed internet access in comparison to African-American families, it's, it's about 82% have access. And then in rural and urban areas, there's a big divide as well. So I think you know to address this issue, governments in partnership with donors and technology companies really need to start figuring out how you get access to technology. So access to technology to the poorest people, the people who really need it the most. Um, so there are efforts to do that. I mean, there's um, one of the best known in sub-Saharan Africa is probably the um, use by Microsoft of white space. So the, Microsoft is working with a number of governments to convert unused radio and TV frequencies into internet frequencies. So basically to free up spectrum that's not being used for radio or television and use it for internet access. But this is an expensive, super expensive endeavor. Um, and it's going to take you know, a lot of resources to accomplish. Um, so I actually want to maybe build on that question a bit more, um, since you took out to the policy side of things. Um, what would you, what should policymakers know about the use of uh, technology in schools and uh, how can this help guide their uh, policy formulation? Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, without sounding, um, I don't want to sound, what's the right word, paternalistic or maternalistic in my case, but I think one of the things that really has to happen is that um, policymakers really need to um, try to educate themselves about technology um, and you know and and uh, and I say that with tremendous sympathy because that's not their job essentially um, you know government folks deal with a number of things I and you know educational technology is just one of the things that education policymakers deal with and you can argue that in, in very poor contexts there's a lot more pressing needs like you know, literacy and numeracy. Um, but I think it's just important for folks to really understand educational technology because there's a lot of misconceptions around it and it's expensive um, 
So, and so that would be kind of a, a basic building block. And then I think policymakers really need a vision and a rationale for technology use, and especially for integrating it in schools. And honestly, I don't think it can be that they want educational technology to improve learning because it's really difficult to firmly establish a causal link between computers and educational improved educational outcomes. And I think this is the line that governments have really kind of been fed by the private sector, especially those who are selling their technology wares. <laughs> and in terms of evidence, this just does not hold up to scrutiny. Um, mm. So, um, you know, I think a better argument really is the access workforce development and instructional arguments um, for using educational technology. So access meaning that educational technology, especially robust internet access, can provide, you know, teachers and students access to all kinds of learning materials and resources and people and experiences that would be otherwise unavailable. And then in terms of workforce development, which I've talked about, um, you know, technology is a basic tool that anyone entering the formal work sector needs to be able to use productively. And so, you know, I'll use us as an example. Um, you know, I, I used a word processor to write a report. Um, I interviewed people, many of the people I interviewed, I interviewed them via Skype. Um, the report was put online via the internet, you found it, <laughs> and now we are communicating via Zoom. So we use technology. I mean, technology is such a basic component of, you know, what we used to call white collar work, but more the, more, the formal sector. And we really need to, I would say policymakers, government officials really need to see it as kind of a basic element that's part of a, of a child's education, like paper, pencil, and books. Um, and, you know, I think another rationale for using technology, again, I'm still going back to your question, but I'm saying we can't, we can't say that we're using educational technology because it, it generally improves learning because we don't have that information. But what we can say is we need to use it because it provides students access to resources. It provides them access to opportunities for workforce development, you know, tech, basic skills that you need to function in a job. And I think um, finally that, you know, all secondary students, all students across sub-Saharan Africa, whether they're girls or in rural areas or they're able or disabled need to be able to partake in the same learning experiences regardless of their income or their region or their language or their ethnicity because no society can thrive if 20 percent of your population has access to the very best educational opportunities and 80 percent does not and and technology particularly the infant the internet um, can provide resources to students who don't have access to really good schooling it can help to to level this somewhat so this is all under the vision um piece we have to think government officials and policymakers really need to think about why are we using this um, mm. and i think then what's really important um so that's Ugo, that's kind of one a b c <laughs> number two to answer your question is that i think policymakers, government officials really have to do kind of a, a readiness inventory. They really have to take stock of, you know, how ready physically, technically, in terms of human capital, in terms of resources, are we? Um, you know, the biggest challenge I see everywhere, not just in sub-Saharan Africa, 
everywhere is this whole idea of the total cost of ownership. Um, you know, people have money for upfront capital purchases of equipment, but they don't have money for recurrent costs, for refresh, yeah. for paper, for upgrades, for software, which is pirated. Um, so this whole notion of, of a total cost of ownership, I think, is, is extremely important. Um, you know, I think a third thing is governments, particularly um, in poor countries, they really, yes, listen to Microsoft, listen to Google, listen to well, Apple doesn't do much, I think, in this space, but listen to these technology companies. Of course, you can't, you can't provide educational technology without them, but they should not be the only voice you listen to, and they shouldn't yeah. be the loudest voice, and right now they are. So I have written, as I mentioned earlier, national policy documents for governments um, about how to use educational technology, where I have not been able to talk to a teacher or a student, the ultimate users of this product, but my documents had to be sent to technology company A, B, and C to have them vet the document to make sure that they approved of it. So there's something really wrong there. Um, so... You know, I think that would be um, a, another area. And then, you know, having said all of this, um, I think one of the things that people have to, to really focus on then is this whole notion of the, the biggest challenge with educational technology is really not the technology itself. It's the human beings in the system, and it's the system itself. Um, so, you know, you don't, you can't just kind of train people and then end it. Um, there really has to be this whole system of change and supports that need to be made that involve changes to the curriculum, to teaching, to assessment, to content, to education management. You really have to work. If you're going to insert something as complex as technology into an education system, you really have to change that system itself to accommodate and cohere with the educational technology because placing it in a system that lacks alignment and coherence is really a recipe for failure. You've been in education for a long time, as you as you mentioned. Um, I'm old. So, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> uh, well, what have you seen in terms of the evolution of um, education technology, right? Um, maybe from a policy level, program level, or school level that you feel um, revolutionized on several fronts, right? The way we approach education technology in both a positive and a negative way, if you may. So, I, it's an interesting question. So let me talk purely about technology. Um, I think, I mean, there's no question that, um, you know, technology has changed at this kind of breakneck speed. So I'll, you know, I'll, I'll probably state the obvious, which is the internet and then mobile devices. Um, you know, kids all over the world, teachers are walking around with, this is a cliche, but with devices in their pockets that are more powerful than I think the computer that launched the Apollo 11. <laughs> so, um, so that's revolutionary, this whole idea, and it's disruptive, this whole idea that you can access any kind of information at any point, as long as, as long as, this is a big if, you have 
you know, a cell phone or an internet connection. So the, the devices themselves, um, the, the changes in technology are extraordinary. I mean, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, um, in many ways, social media, in many ways, I think, disturbing. Um, <laughs> the, the technology, the teaching and the use of technology in schools has also changed more than we, we give teachers credit for. But it hasn't changed as fast as kind of the disruptors want. Um, I don't necessarily know if that's a bad thing or not. Um, I think what technology has done is it has um, really served kind of as an icon to open conversations about how we teach, how we assess, how we learn. And I think uh, it's has a tremendous importance it's it's almost served as kind of a trojan horse um allowing you know teachers to to agree to do things that they mightn't otherwise um agree to do you know when i've gone into wealthy private schools internationally and i've worked in them as well um you know the uses of technology are really often what we would call innovative um you know, students doing makerspaces, students creating videos, students making music, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then when you go into poorer schools, you see kind of very traditional uses of technology. You'll see kids, you know, uh, learning how to use Excel to make a spreadsheet or, you know, kind of that skills-based examined subject kind of training that you see in, <clears throat> in a lot of schools in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, I think there have been obviously uh, revolutionary, uh, maybe that's the word, but certainly helpful, innovative, productive uses of technology. This whole idea, for example, of, of you know governments using data to figure out where to put schools, where their catchment areas should be, um, how to reallocate spending. I think that's really important. Teachers using data to figure out where exactly in terms of learning outcomes kids are struggling i mean you can do that without technology but it's much easier to do it with technology um mm. i think you know one piece of technology that we don't talk a lot about and we should be in sub-saharan africa is this whole notion of interactive radio instruction interactive audio instruction where for example in the case of liberia in 2014-2015 my organization education development center with World Bank funding actually was able to provide radio lessons to mm. students who couldn't go to school um, because of the Ebola virus. So, um, because school was shut down for a year, um, you know, radio and TV tutoring, which you have in places like South Africa, you have um, in in. Actually, can you can you talk about that a bit more? Um, the radio tutoring that happened in Liberia. How how did that work? Yeah, so this is um, interactive radio instruction. Um, so interactive radio instruction, which um, was started by Stanford University in the 1970s to do math education in Nicaragua, is um, it's a um, kind of it's how do I describe it? <clears throat> so you have a you it's based on a national curriculum. So you take the national curriculum. Um, mm -hmm. And you create a series of scripted lessons from the national curriculum with a radio teacher. Um, and then 
the radio programming itself has music, it has games, it has uh, songs, etc. And so it's either broadcast at a certain point of the day um, to nationally, um, or more commonly now, it's narrowcasted. So in other words, the, the programs are recorded in a studio and they're disseminated you know, via cell phones, via MP3 players, via CD players, etc. So the teacher, you know, in a lot of places, a lot of countries, teachers come out of normal schools or, you know, in very poor places, they may be um, girls who just graduate, who have some secondary education and they end up teaching primary school. Um, in some cases, they're often teaching in a language, supposed to be teaching in a language like French or English that they do not speak. So you brought you play the radio program in class and it's really a dual audience direct instruction approach so the radio teacher comes on and says you know bonjour class c'est moi blah 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 and the teacher talks the radio teacher talks to the teacher and talks to the student so for example it'll say teacher put students in groups of four with two girls and two boys so that, that happens teacher write um cat you know, le chat on the blackboard, and it'll spell it out for the teacher in case the teacher is illiterate. But then there's things like songs and games, which I've, you know, witnessed a lot um, in West Africa, you know, songs about how to protect yourself from malaria, et cetera. So it's, so it's, a, it's an in-class, just-in-time form of educational technology that is the only educational technology that has a long body of research behind it. Um, yeah. And I, to, to me, it's a, it, Sub-Saharan Africa. It, it's been often used in Sub-Saharan Africa. When I talk to policymakers, um, some of them, and donors, they want to get away from it because it's perceived as old. And, they, and in, in the world of educational technology, we like what's new. Yeah. But um, it's... One, it's the only technology that has a proven body of uh, research behind it. So, and I think the last thing, you know, just back to your your question about what's kind of revolutionary. I think mobile phones could be revolutionary, but we don't know because the policy on mobile phones, not just in Sub-Saharan Africa, but almost everywhere, is to ban them from classrooms. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's kind of interesting because you know countries are spending millions of dollars or donors more likely are giving them millions of dollars worth of equipment and this whole idea of getting enough technology into schools in sub-saharan africa is really a paramount concern of governments and yet kids and teachers are walking around with a computer in their pocket or in their handbag or in their backpack and we really have to figure out how to leverage the technology that people already own and know how to use within the formal education system. And so, you know, phones are disruptive, there's no question. And they're not always the most optimal educational technology tools because they have huge interaction costs because the size of the screen, it's hard to write on them, et cetera. But I think by banning them, we're kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater um, and engaging in these financial redundancies by furnishing schools with technology that's often not used while banning students from using technology that they use all the time. Um, and we're really, um, I think, cutting the legs out from underneath kind of the basis of your question, which is our innovation and kind of 
revolutionizing or transforming education. Definitely, definitely. Okay, um, so I, I want to focus a bit on um, Sub-Saharan Africa, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of the limitation and the pressing needs, right, um, that we see in terms uh, regards to education in, in developing nations in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, how can some of this, and you can mention a few of the needs, how can some of these pressing needs be uh, alleviated by education technology? Uh, and maybe what, why do you think um, education technology can be used to alleviate these needs? Um, you know, the needs are different based on <clears throat> the level of the system that you're talking about. So in terms of a primary education system, the needs, you know, it's basically about um, basic education it's literacy and numeracy and there i think um, educational technology is can be a very powerful driver and it, it is being used quite a bit actually so um i think of things like the x prize in malawi the i'm not sure let me take that back i don't i think it is the x prize but the one billion program where kids are given tablets and they use the tablets for basic you know, educational act, apps to um, learn basic literacy and numeracy skills. And this is what technology is just great for. It's really good at kind of behaviorist, fundamental skills, binary things, um, multiplication tables, the alphabet, um, phonics, phonemic awareness, things like that. At the, when you get to the secondary level, which is really my area of, um, kind of my bailiwick, I'd say, is, the needs are much more specialized and they're much um, deeper because the whole purpose of a secondary education is really to help students specialize skills and then to prepare them for the world of work and for the uh, for possible university what's transversal in in both primary and secondary education in sub-saharan africa is <clears throat> those three areas in terms of access, quality, and equity. Um, so in terms of technology, I'd say, of course, that, you know, in terms of access, where there's infrastructure, and that's a big if, um, you know, students can take tutoring courses. They can have access to all kinds of learning experiences, provided they're in a language the students speak, which, of course, is another big if. They can access digital textbooks at open and open education resources because the delivery of print materials and textbooks across parts of sub-Saharan Africa is so problematic. Um, you know, it, teachers can have access to all kinds of learning opportunities through technology. So this isn't Africa, this is Pakistan, but years ago I was part of a team in, um, and we created animations and interactive videos and reading materials for teachers in rural tribal parts of Pakistan who weren't allowed to go to face-to-face -face professional development sessions because their husbands or brothers or fathers wouldn't let them. So this is really an example of technology providing access to learning. Um, you know, and it's not just computers. You can get this through radio, like I talked about, through television. Um, I think a second area then is is obviously quality, and and we see this a lot in sub-Saharan Africa. A lot of families are voting with their feet, and they're taking their kids out of government-run schools 
and they're <clears throat> sending them to these low-cost private schools, many of which use technology in those schools. It's, it's it really kind of a fundamental part of what they do. Um, and you can see this in terms of, um, as I mentioned, kind of this after-school and home-based tutoring um, programs to help students pass these national qualifying examinations. So groups like um, Bridge International Academies, I don't know that they're not in Ghana, but they are in Nigeria, they're in Kenya, they're in Uganda. They're, they're controversial, um, but Bridge uses scripted lessons. Every teacher is given a tablet, yeah. and um, <clears throat> the teacher has a scripted lesson on that tablet, and then uses the tablet for assessment data that they feed back to their office here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is across from the river where I am. But what Bridge does is it imposes some kind of quality control via the use of technology on the teaching and learning process. Radio does the same thing with its scripted lessons. Um, I've seen the same thing here in the United States through what we call virtual algebra programs, two-way video where there's a video teacher who's teaching the teacher in the classroom about algebra at the same time that they're teaching the students. Um, so, you know, technology can be used to impose some kind of quality on the teaching and learning process, which is often so variable because of the teacher's skills or a lack of resources, et cetera. And then, you know, this whole issue of equity, and I've talked about equity and we talked a little bit about the digital divide, but just using technical and telecommunication infrastructure to connect students to learning opportunities via radio and TV and the internet that mightn't otherwise exist um, and connect kids in rural areas where there may be no teacher, you know, algebra or Swahili or Portuguese to well-trained teachers in the capital city. Um, mm. One of the most interesting and maybe innovative areas of educational technology use in sub-Saharan Africa is the use of technology for refugees and internally displaced people. Um, there's all kinds of programs, InstaSchool, InstaSchool through Vodafone and through UNHCR, um, online courses, et cetera, for, for students across the Sahel who have been displaced because of conflict, or, you know, because of Boko Haram, because of, um, of wars, et cetera, famine, uh, famine but war, um, climate change, et cetera. Interesting. Okay. Um, so I have a few more, maybe three more questions. Mm -hmm. um, so the first one, we've talked a bit about um, uh, what policymakers can do. Uh, we've talked about the, uh, or we mentioned a bit about the private sector. So just looking at the policymakers, the private sector, uh, financial institutions or donors, um, and seeing how we've not gotten as much learning outcome through the use of education technology, what, what can this group, this group of people do, um, or what actions can they take collaboratively to improve um, the outcomes of education technology in developing Asia? Yeah, I mean, I would say the first thing in terms of the, so I'll focus on the private sector, is I think that the private sector has to really focus on long-term national imperatives versus their own bottom line. Um, now, this is hard to do because what is the role of a technology company? It is to sell equipment, um, to sell its devices, its software, et cetera. Um, and you know, no sub-Saharan African government can develop a robust or quality-based ICT and education program without the support of the private sector. But when I was talking to government folks, 
<clears throat> and I've seen this in my own work, um, you know, a number of government folks expressed concern to me, even though they're extraordinarily grateful that, you know, local and international private sector companies are, and I quote, doing their own thing. And, you know, it may be that a company decides to kind of circumvent a national or provincial government and work directly with a set of schools or provide certain types of hardware that haven't been trialed yet or researched or that are even educationally feasible, but they want to showcase, they want to market new technologies to parents. And then the parents pressure schools to get this thing. So interactive whiteboards, I think would be the most common example. And, and that's not necessarily in sub-Saharan Africa, that's in other places. So um, I think, you know, the governments have to figure out a way to, um, government and private sector, I suppose, but really governments have to figure out a way to kind of channel the potential of technology companies and really get them on board with national policy imperatives. And I think private sector companies have to realize, I'm sure they do, that, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, so South Africa has an interesting mechanism because all funding around educational technology goes into a common fund, including from private sector companies. And then it's the, it's the government that decides how it's spread, although, <clears throat> you know, that can invite corruption. So I think that the second recommendation in terms of the private sector, you know, so number one is obviously focusing on these long-term national imperatives. And I think number two is, is really moving beyond their device to the whole ecosystem. Um, and, you know, what happens is when educational technology initiatives fail, and yeah, most, most I guess, have. Um, well, it depends on your definition of failure. I'm I might dispute this a little bit. But um, it's often because you're focusing on the device to the exclusion of the more important inputs. Um, and so, you know, secondary schools have to have access to educational technology that's simple and that's easy to use and that has proper filters, et cetera. But, you know, if you, as, as a company, if you place technology in labs or tablets in the hands of students and there's no attention to the critical human and infrastructural and educational support, then it's going to fail. And that happens a lot. I mean, companies give equipment and they kind of count on the education system to do the really important stuff. But these are often very, very weak systems where, as I mentioned earlier, policymakers may not know what the affordances um, and the drawbacks of technology are. So I think technology companies um, really have to kind of um, really focus on this whole system approach. Um, and then I think a, a third area for, for tech companies, um, and I'll talk about government and then I'll talk about donors too, is they have to kind of stop punting on the recurrent costs. So punting is an American term in American football. When you can't score with the football, you kick it away to the other team. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I would say to governments that before you purchase equipment from a technology company, and often that is done with donor funding, with the taxpayer money of other countries' citizens, then there has to be a funded plan for maintenance, for refresh, for upgrades, for software. There has to be this companies, technology companies, I think they have a duty to in, ensure that governments really understand the total cost of ownership of technology adoption in the system. Um, and, and that's something that companies 
largely don't do. <clears throat> so, you know, so you go into classrooms, you go into computer labs in Sub-Saharan Africa, I'm sure you have, and you see all this equipment that's piled up there. It's like a, it's like a mountain of technology corpses um, because the schools, the districts, the government doesn't have the money for the recurrent costs that are so important to maintaining an educational technology system. Um, so in terms of that's very interesting. So in terms of, you know, donors, um, the first thing I would say is I, so I can only speak to the U.S. donors um, because I work with them. I don't do World Bank, you know, funding. So multilateral <clears throat> donors tend to do sector-wide funding, health, education, and bilateral donors, at least in the United States, um, focus on projects. And right now, I think, it's fair to say that our U.S. donors are very shy of technology, um, and they're very—they feel like they've been burned by it because it hasn't worked in their eyes. I would say, in part, because of all the things I've talked about, and because of unrealistic expectations, and because speed kills. Um, so the first thing that we have to understand, I think, donors have to understand, is that any innovation. Um, it can't happen in two years or five years. It, it takes decades um, yeah. to change institutions and to, to change people. So an awareness of kind of the fact that speed kills and the greater understanding of the change process, of, you know, it's, it's extraordinary because international development is about change. And yet um, I would say there's a real lack of understanding about change management and the change process. Um, I think number two is that donors look, we all use technology. It's, it's kind of like the air we breathe right now. Um, who's writing anything anymore with paper and pencil? I mean, some people are, but who's, who's using an abacus um, instead of a spreadsheet? And this whole idea that we don't fund that, we don't believe in that, I just think is really counterproductive. Um, now, I'm painting too broad a picture because USAID, for example, has its whole Africa Storybook program and works with World Reader, giving Kindles to schools, um, funding Kindles to schools to provide books to children. But generally speaking, at least at the secondary level, this, there's this kind of fear and, and shyness around using technology um, for probably very good political reasons. But I think we have to move beyond that, <laughs> frankly, especially when you want scale and all yeah. different funded projects want scale. You can't have scale without technology. You can't really reach 50,000 teachers in a country without using some form of technology. Um, I would say a third recommendation for donors is the same thing that I said about um, private sector companies, is that you really, they really have to ensure that their initiatives are contributing to national policies and objectives. And that is often not the case as well. It's sometimes, unfortunately, the donor telling a country what they're going to get, <laughs> as opposed to the country telling the donor what they, they need. Um, so, you know, where do we see this? We see this most typically in just the nature of donor funding and education, you know, these very short-term projects. Um, so that programs end when donor funding ends and these short-term projects that are often independent of and disconnected from government frameworks and policies. And we've seen that these can really create very unhealthy tensions and fragmentation within education systems. Um, and I'd say, so, you know, a donor like a private sector company really has to um, uh, 
uh, what do I, you know, just ensure that their funded initiatives really contribute to national policies and objectives and that they do so in ways that really focus on, on sustainability. Um, now, in terms of government, um, you know, I think uh, there's so much that can be done at the government level in terms of, of policy frameworks. So I think the first thing is really developing this policy environment um, to make sure that there's, you know, <clears throat> financing and capacity and regulation at, at the national level, but at the regional level. Um, so a perfect example is the cost of the internet in Africa. You know, in some places like Zimbabwe, it's $75 for a gigabyte of information versus 56 cents in Rwanda. I mean, that's purely, that's a policy issue right there. That is the government, one government versus another government making a specific telecommunication policy decision. Um, so I think governments have to, you know, have to create policies that encourage innovation, um, that encourage risk-taking, you know, figuring out what your educational goals are. I mean, maybe one thing governments can do that they're not doing right now is kind of demand um, that when donors or when technology companies come to them with technology and they want technology to, in, to use technology or come to them as technology partners, that they come with some kind of um, high quality evidence from high quality research because that's not necessarily um, something that's done right now. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, I guess, you know, another thing I'm, I'm kind of struggling here with the, the governments because I feel like I've said a lot of this is I think governments should invest in technologies and instructional uses of technology that have demonstrated success. So, you know, I think one would be interactive audio and radio instruction. I mean, most countries in Africa have radio infrastructure. 80 to 90% of African households have access to a working radio. Um, uh, investigating the educational uses of smartphones. I mean, right now, the in many places, uh, I'm certainly not all, I can't speak for every country, but the, there is kind of this reaction to, well, we can't use we can't use cell phones, they're too disruptive, but has anyone actually done a pilot study or an experiment to see in fact if this, that is the case? Um, you know, I think taking advantage of something like television, because again, most African countries have television infrastructure. Um, and, you know, we know that 75 million households in, in Sub-Saharan Africa have access to television. So, um, you know, I'd say this idea of also um, taking advantage of um, technologies that that are present in Sub-Saharan Africa and that people own and know how to use, and where there's the kind of an infrastructure to support content development and instruction, et cetera. Definitely interesting. Uh, so I want to touch on two specific things from the research paper uh, mm -hmm. that you earlier. Um, so you stated, uh, with particular emphasis on, on South Africa, how they adopted the blended learning model mm -hmm. for their school program. Can you talk a bit about that? So yeah, so I wouldn't say that South Africa has, <coughs> excuse me, adopted a blended learning model as much as um, I was able to see schools, private schools, um, that are using blended learning. Well, I wouldn't just say private schools. Um, but you can see evidence of blended learning, again, not just in, in uh, South Africa, but everywhere. So 
schools and how schools are using blended learning or in terms of, like, I mentioned private schools earlier. There's, you know, the Nova Pioneer schools, they're in South Africa, they're in Kenya, and then the Spark schools, which are a South African chain, I visited one. Um, they're both using um, what they call blended learning as a really core part of their instructional approach. And so what they're using essentially is um, taking kids to a computer lab. Um, so Michael Horn, who I believe is one of your guests, um, came up with a taxonomy of blended learning. And um, one of them, one of the approaches, there's seven of them, so I apologize that I can't, <clears throat> I don't have them all memorized. But I think yeah. one of them is a lab rotation model. So yeah. students rotate through a lab and a fixed schedule. So I, that's most commonly what I, I've seen in private schools in sub-Saharan sub Africa. Um, low-cost private schools. I'll talk about wealthy private schools in a second. Um, yeah, so you have some kids who stay in the classroom and some kids <coughs> who go to the computer lab because that's where the computers are. And what technology is being used for there, it's really um, computer-aided instruction. Um, and it's being used to do basic instruction in you know this kind of basic binary learning that I talked about that computers are so good at. So multiplication tables, the alphabet, um, et cetera. So, um, and this frees up the teacher. So as the kid is learning, you know, let's say the alphabet or multiplication tables, the teacher is actually able to circulate then among the different students who are working on their own individual computer and able to provide some extra guidance or go back to a classroom and work with a smaller group of students. So that, so it's that kind of blended model as they call it is, um, is really, and it allows technology to do what it does best, and it allows the teacher to do what humans do best, which is to do, you know, kind of criti critical inquiry and um, answer open-ended questions, um, guide, etc. So, in terms, <coughs> and this is mostly what I see in, in the use of blended learning in low-cost private schools, because the other models, things like a station rotation model or flipped learning, they're actually a little harder to do instruction-wise, they demand a lot more of teachers. Now, when you get to um, wealthy private schools, <laughs> where, where I've spent a lot of time, um, it's kind of like uh, the American writer F. Scott Fitzgerald said once, the very rich are very different from you and me, and that's true, it's another world. So I think of schools like St. John's in, in um, Johannesburg, excuse me, or a place where I spent a day, which is really one of the most impressive schools I've ever seen in 22 years of doing this work, and that's Parklands College, which is in Cape Town. Um, and you can just see the, the, the blended approach. It's not blended, it's completely integrated. It's beyond blended. So you've got abundant technology. It's in the hands of teachers and students. They're doing way more innovative activities. They're creating, they're problem solving. Um, and there's an international curriculum like the Cambridge curriculum or the IB curriculum that really, really supports this. So they've, they've basically adopted um, based on um, assets and, and infrastructure, um, unique models. Okay. Um, so the final part of the paper, um, which I, I thought was really, was very profound and I would like for you to expand a bit more on. Um, you said, or it says, starts with education not technology mm -hmm. right so can you can you and you've shared throughout this interview what you what you mean by that but we've spoken a lot about the technology aspect of the education technology so can you expand a bit more um 
what what you are referring to when you say start with education, not technology. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> educational technology, so there's a term. And when we think of educational technology, we think of the technology first. Even the yeah. first word in the term is education itself. So, yeah. and I think this is why so many, there's so many problems and there's been so much failure, is that we start with the technology. We ask the question, um, what kind of, and, and the very last thing I said and wrote in that paper was because I was being asked this by the funder, is what, what technology should these governments be using? And I kept saying, that is the wrong question. Um, the question is, what, is your, what are your educational goals? What are your educational needs, number one? Number two, how do we solve these? Number three, can technology play a role? And if so, how? And what technologies? Um, and I think that's, you know, the big issue that I've seen everywhere in 22 years. So I'm not in the research paper, um, which you can be, be found, by the way, on the MasterCard Foundation site. We're not piling on sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, this is, the United States has wasted, the United States, Europe has wasted billions and billions of dollars going down a rabbit hole in terms of educational technology. But you have to start with the educational goals and outcomes of the system. How do we improve teaching and learning? How do we provide kids with the skills that they need to be good citizens, to be you know, productive employees, to be excellent university students? Um, how do we improve teaching? How do we learn to, how can we better measure what students know? How can we better teach students who are struggling? How can we provide access to all kids, not just wealthy urban boys in Johannesburg? Um, I think this is the, this is, we have to start with education. The problem is that I think education is really complex because it's really about behavior. Um, it's about knowing and it's about behavior. We understand more and more about the brain, but we don't understand a lot. So there's a lot of back and forth in education. You know, people say, oh, we did that 20 years ago, now we're doing it again, so it's a fad, it doesn't work. Well, no, it's because we're learning more all the time. Um, educational interventions are often very complex, they're recursive, and they take a long time. Um, the problem with education is that everybody has an opinion on it and everybody thinks they know better than teachers because they've all gone to school so, and they have children and, and they, yeah. they confuse their private needs with kind of a public good. Um, so we really, that's the thing is to start to, to, as I said, if you can improve the education system, if you can have high quality teachers who really understand how to teach in, in really interactive ways, who know how to modulate and titrate their teaching. So for example, when to use direct instruction, when to use group work, when to use pair work, when to have a project, when not to have a project. Um, if you can work on teacher beliefs, this whole idea that you know this innovation can help me do my job better. If you, if you can improve leadership in the system, institutional leadership, principal leadership, teacher leadership, um, if you can create cultures that are um, encourage experimentation and risk-taking, which right now most education systems do not encourage any of those things. Um, you know, if you can work on aligning an assessment system so it truly measures a, a child's ability to know, to problem solve, to do, as opposed to recite a set of preconceived answers for some kind of university. Um, if you can, you know, create a, a 
a, a true competency-based curriculum um, that uh, really allows students to develop a set of, of skills, useful skills. It's so much easier to put technology into that system and then to work with the teachers and with the, the people in the system around the technology, but that's not how we do it. We take technology and we drop it into incomplete and impoverished and dysfunctional systems and we expect magic and and we expect it in two years or three years or five years and it doesn't happen and we give up um, and i think it's because we start from the wrong we start with the wrong question um, we start with the wrong goals we don't understand change management and we don't start from the point of view of education we start from the point of view of the technology back to that question we start from the what technology should i be using as opposed to what are my educational needs and goals interesting and on that note uh we'll end the podcast here okay uh, education technology uh start with education and then the technology would make sense Thank you so much, Mabel. Thank you for making time to be a guest on this podcast. So, so much insight, uh, uh, so much I've taken away from it. I'm sure the audience are going to take away from it. And hopefully in two weeks, in six months, in one year, in 10 years, a technology company or a policymaker or um, a donor, a potential donor who's listening to this would learn from this and we will not keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Yes, I hope so too. Um, thank you, Ugo. Thank you. I really enjoyed this and thank you for inviting me. Thank you. All right.